welcome to the 36th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I was joined by my two good friends, Austin Amasoy and Spencer Whitaker, and we reviewed Batman vs. Superman. Austin and I also did a podcast on Man of Steel a few weeks ago, so I'll link to that podcast in the description if you want to listen to it. We cover a lot of the politics of the Snyderverse and why Snyder was thrown out for Joss Whedon in the Justice League, but I recommend that you listen to that podcast before you don't have to it's not necessary but i do recommend that you either watch batman versus superman the ultimate edition before or after listening to this podcast as it will give you a lot of context there are a few spoilers in this podcast and there will also be a video format of this podcast and we include a clip from the movie it's not necessary that you watch it because you'll still hear the audio if you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. I think I'm also on Stitcher, but Austin narrates over it, so you'll understand what's going on if you don't watch the video. We plan on doing a lot more of these during the school year specifically. We tend to have one movie night a week, and I'm sure that we're going to try to find time to do a lot more. I, I think we're reviewing Wonder Woman 1984 after this. Austin and I are going to see it this week, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this and definitely give us some feedback. Here's the review. Hey, thank you guys for joining the show. Uh, if you guys want to introduce yourself really quick, awesome. Maybe you go first since people have heard from you before and then Spencer go after. Great. Yeah. My name is Austin Amistoy. <clears throat> you previously heard from me in the Man of Steel podcast uh, that I did with Liam, uh, where we tore apart my favorite superhero movie. Um, we are back at it again today with Batman Superman and I'm excited to be here. I consider myself a uh, Snyder DC Universe aficionado. Um, and I'm Spencer Whitaker. Um, I am a freelance photographer and film student here at the University of Montana and roommate of our host, Lee McCollum. Um, and I'm really happy to be on the show. My first time here, first of many probably. And I... Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, so we're going to just review Batman versus Superman. Um, we have had all previously watched this movie before rewatching it just a couple of weeks ago. And um, if you guys want to just tell the audience kind of what your guys' positions on the movie were before rewatching it, that would be great. Maybe, Spencer, I know that you had more of a critical stance to the movie. So if you want to go first, that would be great. Yeah, so I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a film student. I come from a little more of a um, kind of like behind the scenes view into films. And so I, when I when I watch a film um, without sounding snotty, I'm more concerned with kind of like the dynamics of what went into making the film and the performances and how it's all tied together and a little less so the um, like finished product necessarily and like the a little less more watching, watching them more for the art as opposed to the enjoyment necessarily. Cause some of those films, you know, there can be great films that you don't enjoy or, you know, they make you feel uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff, but they're very well-made art pieces. Um, and so, yeah, like Liam said, I was a bit more critical. I watched this film when it first came out in theaters. I think I believe 2016 was when it came out. Um, and I was, um, yeah, so I'd seen uh, Man of Steel when that came out and I, I mean, it was fun. It was a it was a Superman movie. I was like 14 years old. You know, I thought it was good. You know, I wasn't I wasn't really into film either. So I just you know it was just a movie. It's a great time. I enjoyed myself. Um, never really gave it a second thought. 
and then came in in 2016 when I was starting to get a little more in, involved in the film world and into all the backstory and all the performances and everything else. And I didn't really enjoy it. I, I mean, it was it was fun. It was a fun experience. I thought it was overly violent. I thought the plot was pretty incoherent. I thought, you know, it just kind of was there to set up big fight scenes and make lots of money and make people excited. Um, and I also had categorized, I know they, they brought this up in the last podcast, but the whole like marvelization of films and how the, that very like superficial level of, you know, character development and all that, but like the overall crowd factor and the enjoyment, like that was kind of the main goal. And that's kind of why I thought this, this film fell into that genre a bit. Um, it's just, you know, just a big blockbuster money-making machine, you know, it's not, it doesn't really care about the art behind it. Um, and so, yeah, I was definitely a bit, a bit more critical coming into it. I had also only seen the theatrical version and we, we reviewed the director's cut, the ultimate edition, however you want to term that, um, which does obviously change a lot. Um, yeah, I would say it was, it was from a little more critical perspective coming into the second viewing because I, I did not think it was, was very worthy the first time. Okay. And then Austin, when you first watched this movie, did you, well, did you watch it in theaters? Actually, I did. This was my first uh, DCEU movie that I saw in the theater. I saw it with my dad and a couple family friends um, a little bit after it came out in 2016, March 2016, I think. Okay, and what was that experience like? Did you like it, or how, how yeah, did you walk away well, from it? I came out of the theater uh, really surprised. I think on first viewing, I, like... It like really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was like bombastic and awesome and and, and whatnot. But um, I think this movie actually was what like retroactively made me really appreciate Man of Steel because I'd I'd seen it again before that point and I liked it more. But seeing this movie and the way that they built off each other uh, made me really appreciate what like Zack Snyder was working towards. And it's what what actually got me so excited for Justice League coming out like the next year. I was like super pumped because. Um, I just came to really appreciate like the world and the vision that he was setting up with these movies. But yeah, the theater experience was great. Uh, and it's a bummer now. Cause like in hindsight, I would love to go back and see it again in a theater. Now that I am at where I am with these movies, which is like really appreciating them. So. Yeah. So I actually kind of want to get into where the Snyderverse is at before we actually dive into how um, the rewatching experience was. Um, so what is the most recent news on the Snyderverse and when are we expected to see the Snyder cut? Yeah. So the, this man, it's so interesting and it has been uh, for months at this point. So um, when we talked to man of steel in, in the man of steel podcast, uh, the, the Snyder cut of justice league um, had been announced in uh, late August, uh, which was a huge deal, not just for like the DC universe, but for Hollywood movies in general, because it's really the first time um, that we're, we'll ever see a movie come out. That is like ostensibly the same movie as one that was already theatrically released, but like completely different. So they're, they're sort of like rewriting the entire movie in its original form. Uh, if you want the full history of, well, not the full history, but a more detailed breakdown of the backstory, I would definitely recommend you go check out the Man of Steel podcast Liam and I did um, a month a month or two ago. But where it stands now uh, is Zack Snyder has um, maybe accidentally revealed on his social media uh, app of choice, which is called Zero, um, 
that uh wait maybe it's called zero don't quote me on that uh but <laughs> he essentially revealed that snatter cut is coming uh in march which is uh, i think a lot sooner than anyone actually anticipated um and it uh, you know it is officially still coming out in four one-hour parts over an unknown period of time. Um, but some of the insiders in the business have, have claimed that it may just release off the bat with a four-hour movie. Um, and if that happens, it may also get a theatrical release, which would be a really – yeah, <laughs> it'd be a really big deal because as of now, it's an HBO Max exclusive. Um, but Zack Snyder is a real fan of the theater experience, so it may be going there. Um, also, the movie did reshoots. It, it added about uh, only, like, I guess maybe five minutes of new footage, which is really interesting. And, and to me, five minutes of footage doesn't even seem like enough to turn a four-hour movie into what really what he what he wants to put in a four-hour movie right but those reshoots included joe manganiello's deathstroke they included uh um jared leto's joker uh who has not reprised his role since the failed 2016 suicide squad so that was like a huge random announcement that no one expected and um yeah, so it's 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 they're he's putting together a really weird and eclectic mixture of characters for this movie, and I'm really excited. Oh, and Ben Affleck came back as Batman for the reshoots to film some more connective tissue. So and good stuff did, happening on the Snyder Cut front. Yeah, and didn't Snyder just announce that he would like to see Ben Affleck have his own movie, his own Batman movie? Oh, I'm sure he has. He's he's been very supportive of Ben Affleck's Batman since he cast him in the role. And you know, I think what a lot of people forget is that um, Snyder's vision for the DC, you know, sort of connected film universe still exists today, even if he's not at the reins. I mean, he executive produced Wonder Woman 1984, which is coming out on Christmas Day, and he cast Gal Gadot in the role. So. And she, she'll tell you all that. She'll t- say it all over social media. She attributes um, all of her success in the role to Snyder casting her for having, you know, the foresight to recognize that she'd make a great Wonder Woman. And Patty Jenkins has has, has done her own spin on the character, but it was Snyder who originally, you know, envisioned her in a, a modern Wonder Woman role. And it's the same thing with Batman. He picked someone who he thought would resonate with audiences. And honestly, uh, Ben Affleck as Batman is is like you know even the critics who don't like the fact that this batman kills will recognize that ben affleck is a, is a really good batman you know he's uh he's got the look he's a great bruce wayne like he's he, he's really the whole package so honestly we are in such unprecedented times right now when it comes to uh superhero filmmaking that i would not i mean i would be stunned but not necessarily surprised if uh, HBO Max was like, hey, uh, Ben Affleck, Joe Manganiello, make your Batman Deathstroke movie on HBO Max, which would be awesome. Because then we yeah. get, you know, we get Robert Pattinson, Batman, and Ben Affleck, Batman. Duality right. of man. <laughs> and, we, and we do cover um, kind of like Flashpoint and the possibility of having a multiverse in the previous episode. So uh, along with like Jared Leto and the politics of the, that film. So if if you are interested in that, definitely go back and listen to the 
previous episode, Austin and I did. Um, but Spencer did reference kind of like the politics of this film as well and how there's kind of some studio oversight that screwed up the theatrical cut. Austin, do you want to break that down? What happened, um, the scenes that they left out, and then we can get into Spencer's, um, his interpretation of this, this rewatching. Great. Yeah. So off the top of my head, um, I wish I could give a full detailed list of all the scenes that they left out, but, um, basically, what I can tell you is the studio, when Zack Snyder turned over his cut to them, which is essentially sort of the same thing that would later happen with Justice League, looked at it and was like, wow, this is too long. Warner Brothers just like, for some reason, has a real issue with long movies, or they did at that time. Um, also, I apologize uh, if you, the bird is coming across my mic. But uh, okay. <laughs> anyway... So they, they had real issue with long movies. And Zack Snyder's cut was like three hours, three hours plus. And so ostensibly, the studio just like went through his cut and was like, okay, which scenes have like the least amount of action? Because that's what audiences care about. And they're just like, cut, cut, cut. And just like sliced and diced his movie to oblivion. So what came out was the Batman v Superman theatrical cut. And upon its release, uh, to this day, it has like a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. Granted, I'm not sure the ultimate cut would like, I'm not sure how much higher of a score it would have uh, if critics had seen that version. But the version they got in theaters was an incomprehensible mess. Like, it, 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 the scenes that were removed, I mean, they remove like 80% of uh, Clark Kent investigating the Batman in Gotham, which is like a huge part of the story because it, it builds up his motivations for wanting to fight this like regular human guy, you know, cause he's Superman. He's supposed to be above that, but his investigation reveals to him that Batman's brand of justice is one that he sees as, you know, completely unfair and, and unjust. You know, he, he's uh, Batman in this movie basically brands criminals that he wants to get shanked in prison. And that's like his, uh, the, the, the sign to his like men in prison to just like remove this criminal from like existence. And Superman, really has a problem with that because he's Superman, right? Like he's the Superman that everyone actually knows. Uh, they just don't recognize him. Um, and of course they're not going to recognize him if the studio removes that entire subplot, uh, which they absolutely did. Another really vital piece that they removed was Lois Lane doing like a lot of her own investigating. Um, in fact, a really critical part that they removed is uh, Lois discovers that the guy who got his legs crushed in the Metropolis attack, Bruce Wayne's employee, um, he basically, uh, you know, after his legs are crushed and he's paralyzed, he also has a vendetta against Superman who he sees like having callously, you know, defended the city leading to him, him losing his legs. And he, uh, gets an offer from Lex Luthor to testify in Congress against Superman. Well, Lex hides a, hides a bomb in his chair underneath lead because, you know, just like in the comics, for some reason, Superman just can't see like through a specific element for some reason. No one really knows why. Uh, but so yeah, he, Lex Luthor had to bomb in this guy's chair. And in the theatrical version, the guy, the bomb just explodes. And it's left really unclear if this guy knew he was going to be a martyr or, and he just like went along with it or whatever, which it, it led to his sort of motivations being really fuzzy. Well, in the 
Ultimate Edition, we discover that Lois actually learned that this guy didn't realize he was going to die. So Lex actually planted this bomb in his chair without him even knowing. He thought he was actually going to stand up and do a good thing in Congress and like, you know, face his former, uh, you know, the villain of his life, essentially. Well, no, Lex just uses him to frame Superman, essentially, which is like a really interesting detail. Uh, and that whole thing is lost and it removes a lot of the tension of the scene. Um, so that's sort of like the gist of the Ultimate Edition. It throws in a whole half hour more footage, which is crazy and brings it back up to that sort of three hour runtime. Um, and it, as a whole, just makes more sense. This movie is going to be convoluted plot wise, no matter what version you see. But if you're going to see it, do yourself a favor and watch the one that actually has a, a through line with its plot where everything builds off of, you know, off of itself and creates like a complete whole because the theatrical version did not do that. And I think that's a big reason why it failed at the box office. Well, yeah, sorry, I should clarify. It didn't fail at the box office. It made $800 million, probably why it failed with critics and didn't resonate with audiences there. Right. And part of the reason I like this movie so much is because of the politics behind the scenes. And they leave out a lot of that, uh, especially in um, Lois Lane's investigations. Um, The beginning scene, isn't it also the beginning scene when they're in the Middle East? Part of that is kind of cut out as well. Yeah. The thank you. Yeah. For reminding me that. Yeah. It's the um, one one of the one one of the opening scenes of the movie is. Lois uh, heading to the Middle East, basically. Lois is a journalist for the Daily Planet, and she goes to the Middle East um, to sort of interview a uh, a, a terrorist. And uh, what she doesn't know is that the CIA actually planted like um, an agent with her as her photographer, uh, and the the civilian contractors uh, who are with this terrorist guy discover that he's an agent. Um, but what they all don't know is that Lois was actually, uh, Lex Luthor arranged that interview, which is, this is what's so crazy. Ultimate edition didn't even make this clear, but Lex Luthor arranged that interview with the terrorist guy to get Lois in a dangerous situation because Lex deduced that Superman and Lois are close, uh, in order to bait Superman to go into this compound, uh, and save Lois, which he does. But then Lex's civilian contractors at this compound burn and like mutilate the bodies of the uh, terrorists and, and like civilians who are in this compound to make it look like Superman came in and just heat visioned everyone just like on a whim and then just like blasted away. Uh, which is like, that's really interesting setup. Like Lex, what people don't understand about this movie. And it's just like blows my mind to this day is they see Jesse Eisenberg's less or Lex as just this like, kind of like incoherent, like eclectic, crazy man but like the guy is conniving and he set up everything from the very beginning he's brilliant and uh yeah the scene that was cut from the theatrical version was them literally doing the setup that the rest of the movie is about it they cut them like burning the bodies and making it look like superman uh had done it also they cut the part where the u.s was going to drone strike this compound anyway so there's politics for you but zach's apparently has issues with the u.s myth complex so there you go <laughs> love it so so spencer your rating on imdb you were covering that before we started recording do you want to do you want to tell everyone what your rating was before rewatching it 
Yes. So before the rewatch, the rating that I had given it back in 2016 when I watched it for the first time was a solid five out of ten stars. Um, I thought it was, yeah, it was, it was not. Okay, there were a few aspects, and I, I think that this is why I felt so attracted to to watching the director's cut as opposed to the actual edition because within my first viewing, I felt like there were little nuggets of things, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, that's really cool. You know, the scene in the Middle East. I was like, oh, that's interesting they're, they're tracking the bullets and i was like oh this 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 lex luther character like there's such an interesting because you know there has to be a reason and why he's so obsessed with bringing down this godlike superhero like the superman and, and and you know pitting the two the superhero of gotham and superhero of um, metropolis metropolis of the city pitting those pitting those those superhero supervillain whatever you want to call them together and i i, I noticed those little nuggets and those little those little pieces that led to like a larger thing. And I always felt like those weren't explored. And I felt like those were dished in, dished out in favor of action sequences, which I found to be, and even still after watching director's cut, I found the action sequences to be not fitting of the circumstance. Um, and a little, a little gratuitous, um, which I mean, there's just nothing wrong with a little gratuitous violence every now and again. Like it's, it's fun to watch. And, you know, in a superhero film, it's got, it's got its explosions. It's got its cool things. So it's not necessarily overly, gruesome or like mutilating people but i felt like it was still a little, little gratuitous um however having those nuggets then be explored in the director's edition was a very very satisfying experience to kind of see the movie kind of come into its own like as it should be as opposed to a kind of a stripped down down version of it for sure um yeah i mean me when i was watching it and austin was kind of narrating it for me during this rewatch i I definitely felt like there was kind of an injustice there. Um, but Spencer, you and I, when we've watched movies before, we we went and saw a bunch of Marvel movies a couple of years ago. And as I told people in the previous podcast, um, a lot of my beef with superhero movies and why I like this one so much isn't because I think it's a masterpiece, but it's kind of like the juxtaposition you were talking about between enjoyable movies and good movies. Um, I think overall, the people who celebrate Marvel movies and crap on these DC movies are like they're they're kind of mi mixing that up a little bit because I think overall these DC movies are ten times better in their production, though they might think that Marvel movies are enjoyable. So what I, we've talked about that before, but what what what's your thoughts on like the Marvel movies and and these? Yeah, um, of course. And so, so first to, to lead into that, I want to um, briefly touch on what I felt the differences brought in this new cut, because I felt like the first cut, the theatrical cut, was a very Marvel-esque movie. It was very, this happens, this happens, you know, we have these two characters, we put them in a situation, they have a brawl, the better one wins. You know, it, and it's kind of like that whole, because Marvel, it's very just a sequence of events, it's a very um, formulaic approach to it. It's kind of like, like things are, are predetermined. And I think what what draws people to film, as we touched on before in some of our conversations, is the idea of we are attracted to the person on the screen because they are us, yet they are not us. They are just a slightly removed version of us. So we get all the joy of experiencing their joy, but when they have their pain, when they have their, you have to have a hard decision to make, like it's slightly off from us. It's not, you know, it's not us. So it's we're okay. It's I'm okay that I don't have to, you know choose whether to save this family or, you know, destroy my values and snap this guy's neck as um, Superman did in the first film. And it's like, we have that little, that little distance, but the joy of watching comes in the suspense and not the suspense of the action, but the suspense of the decision. So in the first 
film in Man of Steel, or not Man of Steel, in the, in the theatrical cut of this movie, of Batman vs. Superman, um, the suspense is there. It has a suspense. It's like, oh, the bomb blows up. It's like, what's going to happen? But all the suspense is leading to what are the characters going to do? And introducing these little nuggets and exploring this is now all of a sudden, what are the characters going to choose? Who are the characters going to become? They're, they are defining themselves. In the first movie, the characters are being dragged along from plot point to plot point by the story and the plot. And which I feel is the same in Marvel movies. They don't have as much agency as um, characters in the DC universe do. So it, yeah, so in this one, I think the biggest thing is the is the suspense of the choice and the decision because now that you have, because it all comes from the dramatic irony. And I mean, it's it's basically, you know, third grade literature stuff, but the ideas you learn are the dramatic irony. The audience knows something that the characters don't. And so in the first cut, the audience's new little bits of what the characters didn't, but that was all kind of brushed aside and just because the characters just made these these decisions that weren't really backed up. They weren't really true to the character. Um, like you said, I mean, the Superman, everyone was like, why is he, you know, have his vengeance against Batman, like he's just another superhero, but learning that backstory and why and how, because you have to watch him make the decision and watch him, or maybe not the moment he makes the decision, but you have to watch him lead up to it. So you watch, you know, the, the paraplegic man that was hurt by Superman. You watch his backstory. You get a little insight into his life. You look at Lex Luthor and you get a little insight into his relationships with the Congress members that he's working with and his relationships and how he's, you know, set up that meeting with Lois and kind of his intentions behind that. And then all of Batman stuff and you see, you know, his, his parents dying and you see, you know, him on the ground dealing with the effects of Superman's violence. And so it, it's kind of vice versa. And it's interesting, too, because you can talk about the more direct ways in which Batman feels Superman's violence and the more indirect ways in which Superman just reads about the violence of um, Batman. And you can kind of like pick your side and, and you believe it's more justified. But and that's such an interesting thing, because this whole time you're still you're balanced between who do I trust? Who do I not trust? Like what's, who's going to do this? And you're all, you're wondering who is going to stay true to their character as in like their, their moral character, not their other character. And who is, who's going to like make a decision that's going to change the course of the events. Whereas in the first one, it's all a suspense and your suspense is only when are they going to fight? How are they going to fight? You know, what are they going to destroy? Who, who's going to die? But in this one, it's like, who are they going to choose to become as, as individuals? And they get to kind of establish their own story. And to get back to what you were talking about, Liam, I think in Marvel, with such a formulaic and such an um, audience-pleasing approach, it, the, Marvel, the Marvel universe isn't a bit of a bind because they've established this brand. And it's a very, um, a very positive brand. It's very everyone's happy. You know, even the deaths that occur, you know, it, it, they're still there's as happy as a sense of nostalgia, there's a sense of happiness and enjoyment, which I, I do appreciate that they do that um, in some ways because it does bring back that childish joy of reading the comics. And I, I wasn't super big into Marvel comics, but I was into a lot of other graphic novels and things like that. And there is this kind of innocent childish joy of, you know, watching, watching, you know, page after page and Hulk smashing this building, Hulk, you know, killing this person. And it's like, oh, you close it and you're having a great time and do a little childhood Saturday morning. And so I do kind of appreciate that they they had that aspect to them, whereas DC, I feel, um, has turned, um, and I think for the better, turned into a little more of an adult, a little more what these, what those childhood readers want to see as they progress. And it's kind of, DC's kind of evolved with their audience, whereas Marvel is now targeting, you know, my little brother who, you know, never would have had this growing up. He's now in love with Marvel comics and because it's kind of tailoring to that childhood generation. And I'm sure my kids will love Marvel comics. And um, it's kind of that, that innocent, childish aspect to it. And I think, but when you have that, I think then it becomes a more formulaic approach that Marvel is at a position where they can't stray from that. 
they've built such a brand and they've built such a reputation. They have 35 movies, whatever they have, they're big, you know, generation spanning um, universe. And they're at a point where you can't all of a sudden have Dr. Strange, you know, put in a position where he's like, do I kill, uh, you know, Iron Man or not? Like there's just no, there's no room for that level of level of independence within the characters. Their characters have to choose what they've set out. And I think it also stems from, maybe their master plan is too big. Maybe they have too much of a formula. You know, we're going to have this movie and at the end of this movie, it's going to lead to this movie and this movie. And, you know, it's all going to lead up to this. And it's like, then when you actually get into directing those roles and acting those roles, you already know what's going to happen three movies down the line. You already know that this character doesn't truly have independence in that moment, make a decision. And you talk about like um, the one that's widely lauded as um, one of the more like critically kind of civil war, where they do have those uh, semblance of those, of those decisions and those, those independence and that kind of conflict it's all so predetermined that it's really hard. I think, and I think that's what I'm saying. It's kind of like they've done it to themselves, but it's not necessarily something that they did intentionally because now they're in a position where their directors, where their actors, where their producers don't really have the flexibility to let these characters make their own decisions. And so I think that becomes pre, too predetermined. And I think maybe there is actually a benefit to having the disruption that the DC universe has had with all their changing cuts and all they're changing this and that there's so much up in the air and it allows those characters to kind of forge a path for themselves within that world yeah i like that point about civil war a lot too because i mean to me when i watched that movie it seems so separate from the others like it's almost as if they gave so much motivations to these characters they never had before in one movie and it just exists on its own um whereas like if you watch uh captain marvel which a lot of people like today like you can see that it was placed exactly where it was for the reasons and the role she played in endgame so like i think it's very accurate what you're saying is that every single movie pointed towards this end goal which is kind of disrupted especially with this new idea that dc is talking about with flashpoint and the multiverse um but austin do you have any comments i know you chatted uh that he had a good point oh, so if you want to yeah i was just gonna say uh spencer's um point about batman and superman dealing with each other's violence and, and the way that it affects them uh, was really interesting i actually haven't thought about that uh, with this movie before because really the whole movie is about violence and like how how an individual chooses when to be violent right like superman superman committed like <laughs> i mean arguably arguably genocide in men of steel in order to like stop zod from terraforming earth and and literally killing everyone um but in the process like he as a kryptonian didn't really have to deal with the immediate fallout of those actions whereas batman did but like superman has to as spencer said indirectly deal with like his like mo like moral offense at Batman's version of justice, even though one would argue that Batman's justice is like more just than Superman's was, because Batman is branding you know criminals and and not just like thieves, but like you know really bad dudes, um, and 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 you know it, inflicting his version of justice upon them. But then you could even take it an another level and look at the movie's villain, Lex. Lex's whole motivation comes from the fact that he couldn't deal with his father's violence against him um, because his father was abusive towards him as a kid. And uh, his, his uh, affront with Superman is that, um, you know, here Superman is saving people from crazy genocidal maniacs, but Superman can't save anybody from the violence that occurs within humanity and within a father-son relationship. 
and 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 Lex is like, why would you claim to be a god figure? Because I know God is not real, and you are not a god. It's basically his uh, qualm with with Superman, and you know. Th- uh, that is not the most cinematic motivation for a villain, but I think it's really interesting and really different. And it's not something that we see in other superhero movies as a motivation for any character. And I think that's really interesting. You, Spencer really just helped me crystallize, I think, what the message of the movie is. Yeah, Spencer, I, I see that you raise your hand um, and you can go after this, but uh, Lex part of the reason I like this movie and man of steel um, <laughs> man of steel is because they both have philosophical themes. Um, so it also kind of carries like free, free will into this movie, the question of free will into this movie as well. But then um, just for a lot of uh, philosophy geeks, Lex brings up uh, the question of evil and theodicy and the existence of God and how those two things can exist at once by saying, he actually quotes like the exact theodicy problem. Um, And I think you sure love some free will. Yeah, Spencer, you had some comments on that, I believe. So uh, if you wanna go ahead. Oh no, yeah, I totally totally agree with the the more philosophical approach um, of Lex Luthor. And, And honestly, I think that is the one aspect because i mean obviously there's it's three other movie in it but i think that is the one aspect that i felt was was least explored and um i think that was the one where they kind of copped out on um you know really digging into all that behind it because because they had such um i don't know i, I love the character of and i loved how jesse Eisenberg portrayed him in this i thought it was brilliant i i loved kind of the the lean into a more of a younger fresher lex Luthor with more and less of a jade and you know and i don't remember who played it all but the old Lex Luthor in the um, the Batmans from the early 70s and 80s. I, I enjoyed that one too. It was very comical and he had his little sidekick and all that. Um, but this this Jesse Eisenberg um, Lex was was very fresh and was very new and was very, um, very he's a very stylized character. And I, I loved the style that he brought and how, um, how he was able to ground that in his role. Um, yeah, manic Mark Zuckerberg. He's what Mark Zuckerberg could have been, um, you know, in social network, changing, changing from that. Um, but yeah, but I think I think they kind of fell into a into a bit of a trap with that because he's so stylized. So they had to be very very heavy handed in his motivations, and so he had to have. Um, you have um, Holly Hunter, Senator Finch. They have that that conversation in his office and about um, Miss Grandma or Grandma's peach tea and like the the urine and then all of these like big god themed quotes and the big the big uh portrait on the wall of the angels and the de- demons and like you know the angels coming from above or from below like blah 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 but i think they they kind of fell into a trap and stylizing his character so much that um that he he was unable to have that same genuine backstory as batman or superman did and it was very heavy-handed and very theatrical and very are you a god or are you a demon? I, I did like, you know, there were there were some themes that I thought were very good. I thought his um, because you know, a very a very theme we can talk about just a broader culture as well. Like um atheists is often the, you know, if God is all powerful, he can't be all good. If God is all good, he can't be all powerful. Um and you're like the omniscience and um um omnipotence of of a a deity or a spiritual being in that sense. And I think that they were able to tie that in well, and I really connected to that. I think. I think um, Lex talked directly with Superman on the the landing pad when he was giving him the photos of of Martha, um, and I think he, he brought up pretty much that word for word um, that idea 
of an all good versus an all powerful. And I think I do, I do love that. And I like I talked before about the, the Batman's, um, Batman's kind of, cause there's, there's a very, there's a very strong sense of like, um, self-righteousness that pervades this film too. And I think that stems from people's different interpretation of violence and how they react to it. So Lex felt like he, I mean, there's, there's a little more arrogance that comes from Lex's because he, and I think that they could have kind of brought that in from, you know, his, his childhood power abuse, he might've been, he also had a very spoiled, a very, um, a very privileged childhood um, in terms of um, material wealth and um, position and power. Whereas his personal life, I'm sure it was not very privileged, but he, he has a sense of arrogance in his form, whereas he is bringing down this God, but, the, but even he still has this little kernel of self-righteousness within him where it's more of like a moral, like, how dare you say you're God if you're like allowing these horrible things to happen? Um, pretty much. And I mean, it, I'm sure atheists all over the world can, can, you know, resonate with that, with that feeling and with that idea. And maybe some of some, it's not too far fetched to believe that if a God were to present himself, that there would be individuals in the world that would have that same reaction to him. And maybe they wouldn't have the power, you know, to do anything about it, but that Lex has that idea and has that power to do that is an interesting idea. But I do think his motivations were a little less explored um, kind of subtextually. And, you know, cause it was a little heavy handed with his, whereas I felt like they dealt with Batman and um, Superman's sense of self-righteousness very, very deftly and very, they explored that very well. And also, He's not the main character of the film. So I mean, it's Batman versus Superman. It's not Batman versus Superman versus like Luther. So they can't spend, you know, a whole hour developing his backstory in the Middle East or whatever. But I do, I do think that could have been explored a bit more. Yeah. Austin, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with um, pretty much everything Spence said. Uh, I relish in Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal of Lex um, a lot of people had an issue with it. They they saw him as this like, uh, well, manic Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like he's a spoiled Silicon Valley playboy who is socially awkward and it's like, how is he? Because uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with, excuse me, familiar with uh, like DC Comics in general, Lex is very traditionally like a middle-aged to like older man, bald, who's like, cold and calculating and just ruthless in his like execution of a plan and this lex was like really went against the uh went against the grain of like what lex luther typically is um but i i don't know i i just loved it um he is his portrayal is really interesting i agree that it's like underdeveloped which is probably probably the movie's biggest crime because lex is sort of the i mean he does become the villain that batman and superman unite against uh, essentially um and that's why it's just you want you would want him to be a little bit more compelling for that to be uh, a satisfying resolution to the story but um yeah also like spencer said he is a he's like a secondary character so i'm i'm glad they went deeper especially in the ultimate cut into um Ben Affleck, well, Ben Affleck, yeah, Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill's beef. But uh, um, I do hope that he does. I really hope he shows up again someday in this, like, hopefully HBO Max Snyderverse. Crossing my fingers, we, we'll get it. Because um, he had a post credit appearance in Justice League, um, and it was kind of kind of goofy. But also, they shaved his head in prison, so he looked more like the real Lex Luthor. 
turn and say there people you happy he's bald um but i'm just i'm really hoping we get more lex in the future of the dc universe he he was, he was really good and i'd like to explore him more as a character because he's still alive and he's, he's not happy with superman still in fact he's the guy who sets the plot of justice league in motion because he like you know facetimes with uh steppenwolf in uh the ultimate edition of bvs which is something again another thing that was cut so um yeah good stuff and granny's peach tea man that, there's a whole conversation there about granny's peach tea but uh people hate granny's peach tea i think it's goofy and over the top and i love it but uh i'm also so biased for this movie so don't listen to me yeah hopefully the listeners seen it or else they might be a little confused by that urine comment but uh yeah so spencer you also had some problems kind of with how they wrap the film up um do you want to talk about that yeah so i think and this has been an issue in both marvel and and dc for a, a long time is there, there's a, a fine line to walk between being true to the comics and making the film mainstream enough that people who have no connection to the comics can view it. Um, yeah, and then yeah, the, the third act, the end, it's a big issue um, because it's hard when you you know you have a, a movie with these ultra powerful beings. Like in every movie, then the, the villain has to be more powerful, the destruction has to be greater, blah blah blah. And it's hard when you've already addressed you know, the destruction that one character has caused. And then that's been a whole conflict in a movie. And then the next movie, they're blowing up another city again or the same city again. Um, so there's an issue with that. Um, and I think, I, I, okay, so I will say this. I think they developed Lex Luthor's motivations for bringing Batman and Superman together enough for the film to work. I would have liked it to have been explored more. I would have been more satisfied with that. I think the other thing that they weren't really clear on, so everything, so they, they were clear enough from the beginning from when he's, you know, pitting them against each other, when he's like, you know, dropping some clues, he's bringing Superman to save Lois Lane, he's getting the um, kryptonite, you know, they explored that a little bit more and like, it made a lot more sense why he wanted it and you kind of like linking to the dramatic irony of him having this and Superman being all powerful at the moment, but you know it's going to happen later uh, and you're just wondering how he's going to use that. And then also you get to um, the one thing that I felt they lost me at was when they went from Lex Luthor hitting them Batman versus Superman to all of a sudden trying to create and control this monster and diving into Kryptonian lore and understanding all of this. And he's in the ship and he knows all the commands and he knows this. And, and I get that he's a smart person and I get that in the very base, his intent is to, I mean, obviously he sees in the event that Batman versus Superman doesn't end the way he wants it to, he will create this, this, I think, was it dark side? Is that what he creates? Or um, Doomsday. Doomsday, yeah, Doomsday. Um, to, to, I mean, he wants to create this ultimate monster to be able to defeat, you know, he's the anti-Superman in, in the case that the Batman versus Superman brawl doesn't turn out in his favor. However, Doomsday is a very critical role, and I've read an, enough of various comics to kind of understand his role um, in the in the comics and, and, and in Batman's kind of trajectory. However, Lex Luthor doesn't read comics, and so he has this this interesting, weird background knowledge of of both Kryptonian lore and Kryptonian blah blah blah. And I get that maybe he's investigated the ship that's in you know the ice somewhere, and he's he's done this and he's done that, but 
they kind of lost me when he was creating this Kryptonian monster using Kryptonian rituals and blah, blah. I mean, it's one thing if he like hacks into a computer and he's doing computer stuff because he's a computer guy. But it's another thing when all of a sudden he's on an alien spaceship talking to aliens and using alien technology to create almost like a, like a, a spiritual ritual, you know, with this, this religion that he doesn't know. Okay. Yes. He does tell us to teach me, but yes. And like you said, it's much of a cop out. Um, he, I don't know. He, it just, that, that, just that extra step. And it's one thing, and it's probably interesting because I probably had to walk the line between being too heavy handed and explaining who dark side was and ex- or explaining who doomsday was and explaining, um, the meaning behind that and what it means and, and how evil the ritual was and the, the creation and, you know, how many laws he's breaking both moral and, and actual laws of the Kryptonian society. Um, but I think, I think that step is where Lex Luthor, I didn't understand his motivations for doing so besides obviously the motivations for being Superman. I didn't understand his knowledge of the ship and I don't know. It just it felt weird. And that kind of impacted the third act. And then it was just confusing. And then Wonder Woman was there and I, it, it really fell apart in the last 30 minutes, in my opinion. I think I loved the funeral scene. I loved kind of what they did at the end. I hated, um, Bruce Wayne's line about like, we have to find more like us or like whatever. Like obviously they're setting it up and they have to do a little bit for the setting up the universe, but Lex Luthor and Wonder Woman and Doomsday in the third act were very confusing and slightly disappointing. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know what I just clicked right there. Um, yeah, I, I think that's actually hilarious. And you can see the divide between, you know, like whether or not you handicap the film because you find it more enjoyable or whether or not you like, you know, you prefer to have a well-produced film because here with seeing like the original, I don't know if you guys have seen it, like the doomsday animated film where Superman gets killed by doomsday. Um, and he he's resurrected in the film and they like cover everything in this one film. Um, Doomsday was kind of just like, like adding him into this film was like, you know, literally just patting me on the back. Like you, like, yes, like this is exciting. So um, that's, I actually enjoy the third act, but that's because movies like this, I'm able to suspend judgment and just, and just watch it. Uh, But Austin, do you have any um, thoughts on the ending? And do you agree with Spencer? Yeah, I have thoughts. Um, I think Spencer's criticisms are totally uh, accurate and like fair. Everything I just don't agree because I, uh, I am the, I'm the, I'm, I'm the latter fan you talked about. Where okay, here's here's the deal with this movie. It is a big beautiful mess of a movie and it is like two films that they just went and just like combined them with like the loosest of stitching somewhere in the middle um and for me i I, the reason i love it so much is because i get that interesting story that investigative like um sort of mystery thriller element in the beginning of the movie and then my payoff for that is my big bombastic superhero action in the finale and the reason i like it so much too is because it, it is very much Snyder's vision of superhero action, which is like, uh, like on a mythic scale, right? Like it's, it's colossal. And that's, what's so entertaining about it for me. And, and that's what I loved about man of steel is 
he directs these these like um you know they're called meta humans in this universe but he directs their action as if they're like um so somebody once compared it online to like the closest we're ever going to get to a good live action Dragon Ball Z movie because they move uh like you know they just move so quickly and every punch throws off like a shockwave and it's just so gratuitous but I, that's what i love and it's and it comes together in this big, you know, beautiful visual feast for the eyes and the ears. Um, and it's just pure entertainment. Um, and that's what I think is so great about it. Uh, also, it, it helps that it's accompanied by Hans Zimmer's most bombastic score that he's ever done. Um, I mean, he's just going off the rails with this thing. It's kind of fantastic. Um, and it's just a logical follow-up to his Man of Steel score, which is also bombastic. Um but uh and spencer mentioned wonder woman uh <laughs> where he's kind of like oh and wonder woman's here and yeah that's exactly the way it goes but it's great because it's gal gadot and uh up to that point she's easily the most badass uh um, female superhero we've ever had on screen like easily um and uh yeah no that that's great liam I'll, I'll 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 talk about the score too um and and give some recommendations but um i'm actually i'm I'm wondering here um i have to pull up my i have my favorite part of the movie and i'm wondering if i share my screen if it'll show up and i don't think we'll get struck because it's really brief but i have i have to see if i can show it um i'm not sure if it'll even have audio but let me see if this works Okay. It, it's Sounds Wonder good. Woman's entrance, which is just so good. I can't every time that that part comes up. I'm yeah. just weak. <laughs> I have no like. I lose all of my good filmmaker brain during that scene. I'm just like, ooh, Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is uh, my favorite scene from the movie. I'll have Liam play in a second here. Um, but it's when Wonder Woman appears, and so you got to remember though the build up to this is so great because. Uh, Gal Gadot has, has appeared on and off throughout the movie and Hans Zimmer has just barely teased her score, which is so great because up to this point, the world had not yet been introduced to Wonder Woman's theme, which is uh, inarguably the best superhero theme of any superhero to ever exist. Um, and he's just teased it in like this sort of ghostly electric cello line, which is so great. Um, and she's kind of been thwarting uh, Ben Affleck a little bit. And they have this really great like romantic tension between them. Uh, which is totally ruined in Justice League, by the way. Um, but uh, she's just this sort of mysterious individual who kind of doesn't know whether or not to come back out of hiding because she's gone back into hiding in the intervening years between Wonder Woman 84 and now. Um, but anyway, she sees on CNN, of course, uh, the destruction happening in Metropolis and is like, okay, yeah, maybe I should go help out. And uh, when all hope is lost, um, this scene then occurs and uh she comes out of nowhere to save uh bruce wayne's life all right and i'll share the screen screen the share, screen the share. Screen the share. all right here we go screen the share. Ha, 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 ha. 
So anyway, uh, maybe Liam succeeds in getting the audio in there in post. Yeah, if not, um, it's great because, uh, well, the sound design in this whole fight is fantastic. I, I mean, it is really top tier. And the sound of her gauntlets, like, absorbing his, um, like, laser vision is so good. And the sound of her, sort of like, the shockwave thing she does with her gauntlets is like, just music uh and then of course Hans zimmer's full feet like in out of nowhere as soon as uh she like looks up and it's just so cool i mean it's it's a great entrance for a character who would go on to be um the part of the dc universe that everyone inarguably loved i mean wonder woman came out and everyone was like okay that's the best dc movie and like objective from a filmmaking standpoint maybe it is um and she's just a great character, and she adds so much to the fight. And it was something that a lot of DC fans have been waiting for for years anyway, because now for the very first time, Wonder Woman... Well, Wonder Woman's on screen in a movie for the first time, period. And not only that, but here's Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman on screen at the same time, just like duking it out against this just like titanic villain. And it's just great. And it's over the top, and it's huge, and it's directed with Snyder's visual flair. And it's just a really exciting way to end the movie. And that's, the, but the problem is, that's what got me so excited for whatever they were going to do with Justice League. They were going to have five of these guys doing stuff. And then Justice League comes out, and it is just a downgrade in every way imaginable. Like, just such a disappointment. I, I, in the theater, I just remember like watching and like being like, wow, what's coming next? Because like the end of Batman v Superman was so exciting. And just like this smile that was on my face, just like just shrunk just, like, throughout the rest of the movie. And then it was over and I was like, wow, that was it. Okay. So, yeah. And then uh, not, to, not to go on too much longer about the end of the movie, which is just great. But um, like I said, Hans Zimmer's score is great. Um, he produces some really great tracks in this one. Um, let me let me pull up my playlist real fast so I can give my recommendations like I did with Man of Steel. Um, yeah, really. Oh, quick. also, uh, this is. Go ahead. So, d- with with when uh, Wonder Woman drops down, is it also yeah. kind of like where Hans Zimmer mixes like the non diegetic sound with the diegetic sound? Because it in Man of Steel, when there's the I forget what it's called, the we- world ender. The world or engine yeah yeah Yeah. he mixes that with the score right yeah he he includes that in the theme for general zod which is really interesting um but see in in this one he he doesn't necessarily um really mix it uh, any diegetic sound in with her score but what happens throughout the whole battle is the this various sound effects punctuate with the score which is what's so great um like when superman plunges the spear into doomsday um there are these like just you know it, it's actually the perfect expression of spencer saying it's over the top because he, he like shoves the spear into doomsday's chest and there's like a green beam that comes out of nowhere for some reason and doomsday's eyes are like spewing yellow beams for some reason and there's just a whole bunch of sky beams flying everywhere and at that like i don't know why but at that exact moment, Hans Zimmer it just like takes the like string and brass section and just like cranks them up to twelve. Um, and it's just it, it's really great the way that the visuals and the sound effects and the sound stage mixes with the score. And I think that's what's what really punctuates that Wonder Woman point because you know they're, they're the sound of her blocking the beam and it's just a sort of warbling sound. And as soon as it cuts out, 
the score just like just like drops in out of nowhere and it's like you could you could see the scene out of context which will be what it is in this podcast and your blood is just like right boiling all of a sudden um which is what's so great about Hans Zimmer he does that in all of his movies but um anyway my so my my score recommendations for this are um beautiful lie oh also I had one more one more thing to mention so this is the first um entire score in which Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL collaborate um on the whole score and in Man of Steel uh Junkie XL collaborated with him for a few tracks um, that sort of teased what was coming. They were some of Man of Steel's most bombastic ones. So in this one, they co- they collaborate for the whole thing. And I am so happy to say that Junkie XL is the guy who is coming back to score the entirety of the Snyder Cut. So we'll return to these themes, which is so exciting to me. Um, but anyway, my recommendations, um, Beautiful Lie uh, rolls off the top of the movie. Um, that's the music that plays uh, during the Batman flashback to his childhood when his parents were killed. Um, also, allegedly, a beautiful lie shows up in Wonder Woman '84 for some reason, which is great. But I, um, beautiful lie is great. Their war here is a great track that plays during the Metropolis flashback at the start of the movie. Um, so we get some Man of Steel stuff thrown in there, which is awesome. Uh, the red capes are coming. Is Lex Luthor Lex Luthor's theme, which is great. It's got this great bass piano line, and it's actually an inversion of Superman's theme uh, and the Krypton theme, which is just great uh, musical storytelling on Zimmer's part. Um, Black and Blue is the uh, I think that's the Super Batman versus Superman actual uh, like the music that plays while they fight, which is great. Um, this is my world. Oh my gosh. The end. And that's again, another reason why I l- overlook so many of the flaws at the end of this movie is because I love movie music and Hans Zimmer just really ties it all up in a bow at the end of the movie and incorporates all of these themes that he's been building on for these two movies. And this is my world is so great because it's the music that plays, um, when Clark sacrifices himself and what he does is Zimmer actually uses the same music that plays when uh, Clark and General Zod are like fighting to the death in the first movie um, over this uh, this track here, but he, he slows it way down and makes it super dramatic. And in, in doing so, he turned this theme into like the Kryptonian death theme because it's the song that plays whenever a Kryptonian dies. Um, in the first movie, in Man of Steel, it's like this super exciting electric guitar-like uh, line. And in this movie, it's this like big, slow, dramatic orchestra. Um, and it's so beautiful. In fact, the actual cue that plays when Superman snaps Zod's neck and when he uh, Superman dies is the exact same, just like slowed down. It's so beautiful. Um, but then, of course, the highlight of the entire soundtrack is... Is she with you? Wonder Woman's theme. That is when Hans Zimmer. I mean, the piano's on fire, the electric cell is on fire, everything's flaming, uh, and it's just so good. I cannot recommend that track enough. So good, in fact, that uh, Rupert Gregson Williams, who scored Wonder Woman, uh, was like, "There's no way I cannot incorporate this into the entire." soundtrack and he does and he turns it into a big beautiful heroic theme but it started with Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL and Batman v Superman and can will continue in Wonder Woman 84 uh so excellent score for this movie I can't recommend it enough all right awesome and yeah so um 
we have about 10 minutes here and I know we could keep talking and I think we will once we uh, uh, finally review the Snyder cut, um, we'll definitely come back and we'll try to find a larger block of time because I think we could cover both some more for Man of Steel and um, this movie in that podcast as well. Um, but if you guys, starting with Spencer, if you want to um, say what your current rating of the film is, um, what would you rate it today out of 10? And why? So- yeah. Um, so most of how I like to interpret, because obviously everything's subjective and it's all, I mean, sometimes the enjoyment overweighs it, sometimes the technical aspects overweigh it. Um, what I like to kind of base my, my opinions and my interpretations and my criticisms in film on is what the film is trying to be. For example, I think Paddington 2 is one of the greatest films of all time. I think it, it you know, encapsulates exactly what it's trying to do. It's, it's exactly true to itself and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think there are some Marvel movies that we talked about that I think um, are very are very good at sticking, you know, kind of like, I mean, obviously you're allowed to experiment and all that stuff. And I love that. But but you have to have a, a purpose behind your film because at the end of the day, it is enjoyment and it's also art. art. You know, there has to be just consistency behind the messages. And um, so i think this is why whereas i'm more dismissive of marvel movies i am much more critical of dc movies because they are trying something different they are trying to be more serious they are trying to be taken um especially with films like the joker um they are trying to be seen as serious artistic like visions and and you know that are brought to light and so i'm much more critical of a lot of aspects of them because they are they're trying something more ambitious and i and i praise dc and i praise um um uh warner brothers for for trying something new and not falling into that that formulaic approach that the marvel movies have with that being said i think that this film still falls short of what its message and what its um cohesive thing is um and a lot of that is due to kind of the the incoherency of the third act and the the wild pieces of different and i i totally agree in that it is exciting and while i'm in theater i'm loving i'm loving every second of it i'm loving the music i'm loving the score i'm loving the sound i'm loving the action and everything it just gets me excited um but because the movie is trying to be taken critically i will take it critically and and so that leads to kind of some some of the more criticisms that i have in especially the third act and some of the more underdeveloped themes and so I would probably rate this um, for what it's trying to be, I think between seven and eight, probably 7.5. Um, I think it really achieves a ton of the themes that it wanted to. I think it, it nails down. It establishes the characters in a way they want to be seen going forward in the universe. It's a very great starting point. And I, I'm excited to see where, where um, the true Justice League kind of builds off of that vision that, that the, the coherency across, across the storylines. And I'm excited to see where it, they jump off from. I really loved um, in the director's edition how they developed the, the motivations for each of the characters, the self-righteousness aspect, how they each deal with violence and all those themes that we discussed. I still think they they were they fell a little short um, with Lex Luthor, but I loved how ambitious they were with the character. And I, I really appreciate what they tried to do there. Um, I think he needed you know, five or 10 minutes more or screen time in a few, in a few different situations. I felt like he he was in the situation too many times and maybe you need to see him alone. Maybe you need to see him with a love interest. Maybe you need to see him, you know, 
have have his mom tell him how disgusting of a person he's become and how horrible he is. You know, I think there's there's just a few more scenes that he needs to really flesh out his character. Um, and like I said, I think I think they did an acceptable job towing the line between leaning too much into the comics and leaning too much into the mainstream. Um, I think they did an acceptable job with that, and I still believe they they fell a little too much more into the spectacle near the end. And it's not to say that it's um, um, over the top necessarily, because I think a lot of it is deserved violence. And I think it's very earned. They earned the right to have that, that big climactic scene um, because of their buildup. I just think the, and maybe the biggest issue is that is the transition between the second and third act. So they had that great buildup and it deserved a great ending, but how they got from that buildup to the ending, I think, I think is the, is the, is the weakest point in the film. And I think that's what would, would knock a few points off. Here. But yeah, it's a solid 7.5 for sure. What about you, Austin? Well, my current score on Letterboxd is uh, 4 out of 5. So I would I think that's 8 out of 10 then. Um, but on a 10-point scale, I would maybe even go like 8.5 if we're going to go Hadsies. Um I, for me, I agree with like uh, almost all of what Spencer said. Um, I, I think it's it's a movie that bit off more than it could chew, but I but I give it more credit because it was so willing to try risks. I mean, it, it takes so many risks, and that I mean, like when you can do that and still create a movie that's enjoyable, like you've done you've done something right. Um, uh, also, uh, we didn't even mention it, but uh, th- that extra point five is because uh, it's for the Batman warehouse scene which is like maybe the best like maybe the best batman moment in cinematic history in terms of just like sheer batman choreography um so that that that's where i get some brownie points with me too but yeah i i just think it's a for me who i also you know i also like to watch movies with a critical eye but i think for me um this one uh i i've always been swooned by Zack Snyder's visual storytelling and that really blinds me to or it doesn't necessarily blind me but it 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 helps me overcome some of my problems with like the story or the plot coherence um because at some point it just helps me and I mentioned this in Man of Steel it it just like it overwhelms me with its uh that's the satisfaction I get with watching this movie and, and seeing these characters overcome these insurmountable obstacles. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a super entertaining movie. And uh, if you're going to watch it, uh, definitely, or if you have watched it, but only one time, the theatrical cut, definitely watch the ultimate edition once, like Spencer did, because maybe your 5 out of 10, 4 out of 10 will become a 7.5 out of 10, which is pretty good, pretty respectable. Yeah, well, thank you guys. And we didn't even get to your background um, the behind you, Austin, and like how, how that <laughs> played into the injustice. I think we actually covered it in Man of Steel, how there's kind of that darker side of about it, I think. Yeah, so we should definitely get into that next time when we when we actually watch uh, Justice sure. League. Do you guys think that we should watch the original Justice League before oh. or after? After. And also, okay, yeah, after is fine, but we have to get to it because okay. wow, what a movie! Okay, yeah. I was saying though is that we there should be um, the audience should be expecting also a discussion on Wonder Woman eighty four in the next um, couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I almost think that we need to watch ju- the original Justice League first, even though I know that it would 
we'd have to put ourselves through that. But just so that our expectations of Snyder's are kind of like, like <laughs> you know, because I, I, I've been seeing so much that I don't want to walk into the Snyder movie and then just be defeated because it wasn't as good as I expected it to be. True. We, we need our expectations as low as possible. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> but, but yeah, thank you guys so much. I really enjoyed this and um, I hope the audience does as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, been a good time. Yeah, of course. See you guys later. See you.